Choice is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. And it's the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3, various other frequencies, and on our web www.fmr.co.za. I'm Gory Bose Taylor. This happy hour, Andrew Marshbanks, Wordsworth Books, brings you a bag full of the best while Peter Soule gets your political pulse racing with The Republic of Gupta, A Story of State Capture by Peter-Louis Maybach and No Longer Whispering to Power, The Story of Tuli Maranzella by Tandika Kuglubi. We chat to million-dollar romantic writer Leslie Pierce about, well, about her and her nuanced romantic novel Dead to Me. Cindy Moritz finds Elizabeth Strout's Anything is Possible, a masterful book by a masterly chronicler. Philip Todres finds two inspiring reads in Song for Sarah, Lessons from My Mother by Jonathan Janssen with Naomi Janssen and in Bending the Rules from De Klerk to Mandela, Stories of a Pioneering Diplomat by Rafik Gangat. Both books reflecting on the impact of apartheid and the courage and determination to deal with those harsh realities and still able to forge ahead. As always, Mike Fitzjames meanly tries to set your nerves a jangle with three thrilling novels, while Beverly Ross-Muller survived recent trains and aeroplanes by packing good old staples. Good, the Good Old Staples, Reliable, Absorbing Short Stories by W. Somerset Maugham, George Sanders and Raoul Dahl. Finally, Vanessa Levenstein was moved to tears as she read Raymond Sutner's Inside Apartheid's Prison when she saw that one of Sutner's letters was addressed to her parents. Do stay with us. We've an easy-peasy competition question coming up to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers or a copy of Leslie Pierce's Dead to Me. Andrew Marshbanks, a bundle of cosy, cold-weather reads. Hi, Gary. Well, I'm starting off with three novels that have just come into the shop. And one I mentioned last month, but I didn't have a chance to read it yet. I just browsed through it is the new Dion Mayer. And I think I mentioned last month, it is a departure from his normal writing. There's none of his recurring characters in it, but it is really brilliant. It's a wonderful book. It will make an amazing film, a fantastic TV series, and it will keep you riveted and on your bed while you read this book. It's absolutely one of his top books. You know, he's one of our gems. He's becoming the new Wilbur Smith, but not that sort of writing. But he is becoming an extremely popular, very good South African author. And Dion Mayer, Fever, that is the book that will keep you absolutely riveted through the weekend, hopefully when we have a bit of rain. And it's 260 rand, and I think everyone should read it. And if you haven't read Dion Mayer, it's a good one to start with because it's not in his normal sequence of books. Then I've got another, a, a, 
a sort of follow-up, but it's The Little Breton Bistro by Nina George. She wrote a lovely book that was really popular a while ago, uh, sold a lot of copies, and we all enjoyed it, called The Little Paris Bookshop, which was wonderful. These are lovely stories set around various places. Okay, and this one is set around the Breton Bistro, and the bistro is called Amour, and a woman finds it, falls in love with it, falls in love with the people involved, and you have this beautiful story around life, the passions, and food, which we all enjoy and love to read about. That's the Little Breton Bistro, Nina George, and it's 275 rand. And then I'm reading at the moment the new John Grisham. I like John Grisham. I'm not ashamed to say that. Many people sneer at him, but he writes a really good, fast-reading thriller, uh, court case. This new one is not a court case. It is a thriller, and they're on the track of five manuscripts, five of the first manuscripts of Scott Fitzgerald, which have been stolen from Princeton. So it goes right into the book-selling chains, how modern first editions are sold, how they're stolen. It is actually, it's quite fascinating because he goes right in through this bookshop that's in, that is the front for stolen first editions. And it's quite fascinating how it all works. If you want an education in book-selling, an education in authors, this is the book for you. It's John Grisham, Camino Island, and it is a book that I can highly recommend, 315 Rand. Well, let's go on to the non-fiction. I've got the new book about Tim Noakes. As you know, Tim Noakes very controversially made a, a tweet a, a couple of years ago, which was picked up, and he was taken to the medical uh, council. And this is a story about that, about the court case, about Tim Noakes. It's sort of biographical, but it really concentrates very much on the last controversy. It's called Tim Noakes, The Quiet Maverick, written very beautifully and very interestingly by Daryl Ilbury. Anyone who's interested in medicine, in diet, in Tim Noakes, because he is a man that attracts a lot of controversy. As they say on the back here, a dissident scientist a disrupted media. It's 220 rand. Tim Noakes, The Quiet Maverick. And there's another book that's just come out about scenarios in South Africa. Where are we going? What's happening? I don't think anyone knows. But Franz Cronier has a, a very good try at making guesses as to where we're going to go to. If you remember the Clem Sunter books a while ago with his various scenarios... Well, this is another scenario book. It's called A Time Traveler's Guide to South Africa in 2030. And Clem has written a creativity cause it masterful and gripping, and it actually reads extremely well. It's 260 rand. Max Dupria has also read it, and he says, Cronier is a promising recent addition to our arsenal of public intellectuals. Well, if Let's hope someone knows where we're going. And if anyone knows, it's Franz Crunier, A Time Traveler's Guide to South Africa in 2030. And then going a little bit into the past, I've got a lovely book here, Tony Jackman. I think most of you will know Tony Jackman, who writes columns for the Argus. And very controversially, a long time ago, for the Cape Times, he used to write food crits. And he was the only reviewer that I ever heard or read that gave bad reviews to restaurants that people actually liked. So it was quite fun, great fun to read him in the morning. 
Right. This is called Food Stuff, Reflections and Recipes from a Celebrated Foodie, Tony Jackman. And he's got all the recipes in here that he loves. And, you know, he doesn't balk away from fridge cake, how you make fridge cake, crayfish mayonnaise. I'm just flicking through this here. It's interspersed with his biography, where he is, what he's doing, how he got there. If you know Tony Jackman, the writing is brilliant. It's absolutely inspirational. How do you cook Karoo lamb chops on the braai. What do you do? It's just a book that I want to keep and I want to keep in our kitchen so that we can use it. Brilliant stuff. It's called Food Stuff, Reflections and Recipes from a Celebrated Foodie, Tony Jackman. And that is 320 Rand. Highly recommended. Cheers, everyone. Happy reading. Let's go straight into our competition question. To win Leslie Pierce's Dead to Me, you will hear the interview just after this, or one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth books vouchers. You've just heard Andrew Marshbanks. Is he the boss of Wordsworth Books or Enid Blyton's Wait a Little While Bookshops? Do ring us 021-401-1013 with your answers. Peter Soule. You get our pulses racing with two very topical political books. Hectic political times cause journalists and historians to rush for their typewriters and produce volumes of record and comment. The current political turmoil in our country is producing many well-researched and well-written books of great interest. Two such volumes have crossed my desk in recent weeks and have been eagerly devoured. The first is The Republic of Gupta, a story of state capture, written by Peter Louis Maybach, an award-winning journalist graduate of Stellenbosch University, who exposed the multi-billion rand contract for new locomotives for Prouser. He's now turned his attention to the Gupta family. The publication of this investigation is timely, as hardly a day goes by without the publication of a new Gupta scandal, and Myberg's book, published by Penguin, provides an excellent background and understanding of this family. The Guptas entered the national consciousness in 2013 when a commercial airliner, packed with wedding guests, landed at Waterkloof Air Force Base. There was outrage throughout the country, but the Guptas had been beavering away beneath the radar of press exposure, making friends in high places since their arrival in 1994. They established Sahara Computers, named for Saharanpur, the city of their birth back in India, where their family enjoyed a modest existence. Once Sahara Computers was established, they used their connections to be awarded a major contract to supply computers to schools in Gauteng. They then used their favourable cash flow to close a deal with Cricket South Africa for the naming rights for three of South Africa's iconic grounds, Newlands, St George's and Kingsmead. In a further unlikely development, Graham Smith, the national cricket captain, was named as brand ambassador for Sahara. In 2005, the Guptas persuaded Cricket South Africa to alter their Indian tour schedule so that the team could visit their hometown to be paraded before the locals. Cricket was captured, but this was just the beginning. In quick succession, the New Age newspaper was to follow, funded by lavish breakfasts paid for by various government departments. The 24-hour news channel ANN7 
providing a visual propaganda vehicle for them and the Zoomers. More was to follow, including coal contracts for Eskom and the acquisition of the lucrative uranium mine outside Clarksdorp in the northwest province. Mayberg digs deep into the business dealings of the Gupta family in a breathtaking analysis of how their links to prominent politicians helped them to transform an entire country. It is a fascinating read. My second read is linked to the first. It is no longer whispering to power. The story of Tuli Madoncella by Tandeka Kubule, published by Jonathan Ball. Madoncella once described her role as public protector as being similar to that of the traditional vendor spiritual female leader, the Makadzi, who whispers truth to the leader. When the sounds of the exchanges between the ruler and the Makadzi grow loud, Madoncella said that is when the whispering has failed. This book covers Madoncella's seven-year term as public protector, during which times the whisper grew into a cry. The publisher notes it was a period South Africans attempted to hold power to account through her office. When she was appointed to the office of public protector by President Zuma, he advised her to act without fear or favour. Little did he realise the advice would return to bite him, and this book records the remarkable work Madoncella did at the time. By the end of her tenure, the book notes, she produced tens of thousands of reports, but two loomed larger than all the others. They were Securing Comfort, which was the document she produced on Jacob Zuma's Inkandla residence, and State of Capture, which was the report detailing the influence the Guptas had developed and the depth to which Zuma had sunk. This report was explosive recording significant evidence of improper influence, corruption, influence peddling, wrongdoing and illegality. It pointed a finger directly at Jacob Zuma, his son Duduzani and the Gupta brothers creating a wave of anger throughout the country. The details of how Madoncella sought to release the state capture report days before she was due to leave office and the effort of the capturers to stop its publication are all recorded in the book and they read like a thriller. This story is not over yet and will play itself out during the weeks and months ahead. This book too is a fascinating read. Leslie Pierce, your novels have sold over 10 million copies worldwide. Let's chat about your latest. It's called Dead to Me. You say that your life has had more ups and downs than a well bucket. Your mother died when you were three, and you and your brother were sent to orphanages until your father remarried to what you call a rare fire-breathing dragon. Is this why your heart, one feels, is with dislocated, unhappy children? I mean, you say in the book, you describe ruby girls brought up without any love or guidance as was ruby in dead to me yes i've i've always had a, a thing about it i i'd written about eight books before i realized this was a common recurring theme but i think you know whatever your interest in life it's that i i don't think i was brought up without any guidance there was enough guidance but certainly not any love or affection and of course, you know, as we all know, young girls that are brought up without any love and affection go to look for the first man who's going to show it to them and make really bad choices. I think that happens in every country in the world, wherever you live. And 
I loved Ruby in the beginning. I loved her dropping her H's. I dropped my H's for quite a mm. while after that. Why did you feel the need to pot up Ruby when she was taken in by Wilby? Now, that was Mrs. Wilberforce. Mm -hmm. Did you have William Wilberforce, you know, the 18th century slave emancipator, in mind when you gave Ruby's emancipation? No, not that really. Name? I think I had more my stepmother in mind, really. My stepmother couldn't stand people who dropped H's or said we was when it's we were, etc. So we were constantly corrected as children. So I have a habit of doing it in books too. I always seem to have people that correct people's speech because actually getting people to speak correctly is one of the best things you can give to kids, you know. I think it holds you back not not speaking properly. Maybe I'm a bit old-fashioned, but I think that's true, don't you? One can't help but agree, yes, of course. You know, and I mean, I regional haven't... accents are okay, but, you know, these sort of terrible faux pas with grammar are not a good idea. And I haven't just asked you the gist of Dead to Me. Give us a quick answer. Well, outside. it is about two girls from opposite sides of the tracks who become friends because of the joint need for somebody else. And then their roles are reversed, where Verity, who's got a very middle-class upbringing, has to go and live in a rather nasty place with a, a, you know, funny aunt, and you know, various things happen to her that aren't particularly good. Whereas Ruby, who's got herself into trouble and is ordered by the court to go and live in Babacombe in Devon, which is an idyllic place, gets the life of Riley really. But I think she deserved it really because she'd had such an awful time before. So they're, but they still remain friends. But later on, and in fact, Ruby, the, the whole thing about Ruby saying "You're dead to me" to Verity was a bit extreme, really, out of the cons. But she was embarrassed because of what she'd done, and she didn't want Verity blurting it out. She she'd come to love Wilby, and really didn't want to be shamed in front of her. I mean, that's what it was all about. And I can understand that. I think you know when you've been. You've been a naughty girl for years and you finally find someone accepts you warts and all. You don't want to let them down by saying, I've done this. That's a bad thing. And of course, Ruby was a lovely name for a girl, as you said, from the wrong side. Of the I mean, Ruby, is it, it's a jewel. It's red. It's glowing. Yes, it's also sort of under housemaid in the Victorian era as well. I think it's got a lovely uh, ring to it yes, altogether, yes. Ruby. Yeah. A ruby ring. And also, Leslie, you know, thank you for coming into FMR Studio all the way from your clifftop house in, in Devon. I wanted to see what an ex-Playboy Club bunny girl looks like. At 72, uh, when oh, she's well past her prime. <laughs> you're, you're so young. That, uh, being a bunny girl was just one of your early jobs in the 60s, when, as you say, you wore micro minis and had flowers in your hair and shared houses with other wild people and fell in love frequently. It was a good time? Yeah, it was very good. The best, really. They do say, if you can remember it, you weren't there, but I seem to have a very good memory. Which goes into your books quite a lot. And also about Ruby, you say reading was the one way which Ruby always managed to escape from reality. Do you think that's one of the reasons why romantic fiction is such a great success oh i'm sure it is i i escaped in books all the time as a child i used to run away to the library which was my place place of safety interestingly enough heather green where verity goes to live is where i was between 11 and 16 and hated it 
and the only place I really liked there was the library. I went back there last year and, and gave a talk at the library and found it's very gentrified now and it's much nicer than I remembered, but I hated it when I was there. And so I would go to the library and I'd spend all day in there. I'd read one book during the day and take another one home with me. And that was how I dealt with it. Your books are big. I mean, this one is about 500 pages, but you keep the tension right up to the end. Those last sort of few pages, you know, beautifully structured. Do you get bored by the time you get to the end of a book or you've managed to keep no, your I, energy No, I find the boring bit is the beginning because you don't really know where you're going and you don't I don't feel very confident about it sometimes and I think, oh, I'm boring everybody and what am I going to do about this? And I put it down, I go out and do a bit of gardening or something else and then you have to come back to it. But towards the middle, the magic takes over and then you're completely immersed in those characters and you kind of know where it's got to go. Writing the the final page is hard to round everything up so it doesn't sound like some awful cliche or something, you know. And when you finally write those words at the end, that's brilliant. But then it's hard once you've sent it off because you've, you've spent so much time with it. It's been your friend for a very long time. To actually part with it is quite hard. We were talking to Leslie Pierce about her latest, which is called Dead to Me. Watch out for that in the bookshops and for the one after that, which is called, fascinatingly, The Woman in the Wood. And here again is our competition question to win that book, Leslie Pierce's Dead to Me, or one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth books vouchers. You heard at the beginning of the programme, Andrew Marshbanks, is he the boss of Wordsworth Books or Ina Blyton's bookshop? Give us your answer on 021-401-1013. Cindy Moritz, a masterful book by Masterly Chronicler. I had just finished reading Elizabeth Strout's My Name is Lucy Barton when I saw that she had published another related book called Anything is Possible. I had savoured every page of My Name is Lucy Barton, a slim volume that contains generous notions of what it means to be human, elegantly conveyed through conversations between Lucy and her mother as Lucy lay recovering in a hospital bed. Now, Strout unpacks the characters that Lucy and her mother discussed while gossiping in the hospital. And in a letter to readers, Strout says that many parts of Anything is Possible she wrote at the same time as she was writing My Name is Lucy Barton. She explains, As I wrote about the people that Lucy and her mother were talking about in the hospital, I thought, oh, they have their own story. And then I would literally move to a different part of the table I work on and would scribble some scenes. Then when I was finished with My Name is Lucy Barton, I realized I had another book that could, when I finished it, stand on its own. And that was surprising and fun for me. Lucy Barton is the link between the books, her story being one of rags to riches, or at least to some success. She grew up in rural Amgush, Illinois, poor and humiliated because of her family's lack of standing in the community. Leaving home for New York City and becoming an author separates her from her family and past. But her success draws attention through each character's dedicated chapter to who she was and how people defined themselves then and now in relation to her. We read vignettes that reveal the humanness of every character she's casually mentioned before, demonstrating the depth of each person beneath their surface and how easy it is to miss what a person's really about 
when making snap judgments. For instance, the Nicely Sisters, who Lucy and her mother refer to as the pretty Nicely Girls, are at the same time flawed and good, we see, despite their apparent disregard for the Barton family. Patty Nicely calls Lucy's niece piece of filth as she sits across from her in the school counsellor's office, and then, after reading Lucy's book, she calls the niece back and apologises to the young girl, finding a way to get her into college. Reading Lucy's book makes Patty see that people are always looking to feel superior to someone else, which changed her life. The morning after she read the book, she bought flowers for her house for the first time in ages and describes how all day she had the sense of having a piece of yellow-coloured candy, maybe butterscotch, tucked inside the back crevices of her mouth, and she knew that this private sweetness came from Lucy Barton's memoir. This line about the taste sensation left in one's mouth after reading something that resonates was an oh, you too, moment for me, when an author manages to capture an experience, a feeling in their own words, that reinforces the value of reading to make sense of where and how we fit in the world, and that similarities between us are more likely than differences. Strout has filled in the gaps of what Lucy Barton left out in her conversations with her mother, where the voids spoke volumes about what Lucy left behind, felt too painful to admit. Even in the present, as she visits her brother after not having returned for 17 years, when he and her sister recall traumatic events, she said with a loud and wobbly voice, It was not that bad. Through Lucy, Elizabeth Strout demonstrates potential to see the good through understanding a whole person in every dimension, that human beings at their core are connected through wanting to be seen, included and wanted. In the tradition of literary fiction, Strout has made a profound comment on the human condition, providing the reader with the opportunity for valuable self-insight. She writes, I hope by reading Anything is Possible, you are able for a few moments to transcend the life you are living and to understand and see people who may live very differently, but who have similar desires for love and safety and the friendship of others in whatever form that may take. I'll leave it up to you to meet and connect with other characters in Lucy's world. I'm going back to reread them all, just to experience the truth and beauty of Strout's words, how she brings each person to life, connecting their stories to that of Lucy Barton, a woman I feel like I know. I feel like I know, that's lovely. Philip Chaudry's two inspiring books of courage and determination in the days of apartheid. Two seemingly slim volumes by two South African achievers whose roots are firmly in the harsh and challenging apartheid era are books that I've really read with fascination. The first is Song for Sarah, Lessons from My Mother by Jonathan Johnson with Naomi Johnson. That's his sister. I think Jonathan Johnson needs no introduction as the former Vice-Chancellor of the University of the Free State. He has an incredible reputation for transformation and an incredible number of degrees in education to his name. And what I found very beautiful about it is he really takes on the role of paying tribute to his mother and, as he puts it, to all mothers who raise families and build communities in trying circumstances. He also tries to avoid the cliché of the mother on the Cape Flats, the sort of vulgar stereotypes or the Mark Lottering type thing, that, you know, gap-toothed and all of that. And he deals with it with a great deal of sensitivity of taking 
the mother that he had who became a nurse and the challenges faced at that time coming from Montague following a whole series of dispossessions uh, trying to take on a very very challenging task for uh, boys one daughter and yet being able to impose in some ways a sense of values I think the best thing to do is to quote the author himself Jonathan Johnson it was under Sarah's roof that I learnt how to live and where she would teach us how to die. Under that roof, I learnt the value of selfless giving and the importance of personal discipline. Sarah did not only tell, she showed. I think it's an amazing tribute. It's done with a great deal of sensitivity, and it just is a very clean, decent read, which reevaluates how difficult it was growing up at that time and what sacrifices were made to bring up a family who were serious achievers. That's Song for Sarah, Lessons from My Mother. It's by Jonathan Johnson with his sister Naomi Janssen and it is published by Bookstorm. The other book that intrigued me was Bending the Rules. It is by Rafiq Gangat and the uh, subtitle is From De Klerk to Mandela, Stories of a Pioneering Diplomat. Here is a person who has always stood up for what he has thought is right, coming from a very rural setting in KwaZulu-Natal, or Natal as it was in those days. It's, and it says, a colourful collection of anecdotes from Rafiq Gangat's extraordinary life, and is an extraordinary life. It's a passage of time during which a young man always took on a role to do things in a principled way that he thought was appropriate and correct. I think it's very, very challenging for a person who has come through all of that challenges, serious challenges in terms of how he saw things, in terms of the way he was treated during the period of apartheid and particularly KwaZulu-Natal even associations with the Gandhi story and some are coming out of it in a way that he remained true to what he thought was right and it's a very colourful thing it's not all about principles, it's also about illicit liaisons across the Calabar, experience with Dachau, groundbreaking ventures in music and radio is a man who was the first diplomat under the previous regime so it's, as I say, from de Klerk to Mandela, stories of a pioneering diplomat taking on the challenge of being on the wrong side but what he thought was at the right time creating opportunities and very much groundbreaking opportunities to assert what he thought were the right things to do. So that is Bending the Rules from de Klerk to Mandela, Stories of a Pioneering Diplomat by Rafiq Gangat. Mike Fitzjames, go on. Guess how nerves are jangle. Good afternoon, Gori. This month I have three recommendations for your listeners. My first choice is The Black Book by James Patterson. Billy Harney is the son of Chicago's chief of detectives, and together with his twin sister, they're following in their father's footsteps. After a brutal sh shooting, Billy is left for dead alongside his former partner and a very ambitious district attorney. As it happens, Billy survives, but he remembers nothing of the events which led up to the shootout. Now he finds himself charged with a double murder. Desperate to clear his name, Billy retraces his steps to get to the bottom of the shooting. He discovers the existence of a little black book 
that many powerful people in Chicago would literally kill to get their hands on. Billy suspects it contains many details which, if exposed, would set him free or confirm his worst fears. This was a gripping read from first to last. My second choice is Little Bones by Sam Blake, a first-time author, but definitely a name to remember. Based in Dublin, Detective Cathy Connolly's life has taken an unexpected turn. An unplanned pregnancy leaves Cathy struggling with the balance of motherhood-to-be and the very real dangers of life on the job. Called to a routine break-in, Cathy discovers a baby's bones concealed in the hem of an old wedding dress. When the dress's original owner, Lavinia Grant, is found dead, Cathy is drawn into a complex web of secrets and lies spun by three generations of women. Adding to the workload, a fugitive killer has arrived in Dublin with old scores to settle. Struggling with her own secrets, Cathy has no idea how dangerous this case is about to become. This is an exciting offering from a new author. More, please. My last choice this month is Man of Bees by Oliver Stuart York. Think of the first Wilbur Smith book you read. How fresh and new the storytelling was. Now get a copy of this book and move to a new level of excellence. Gripping in its balance and background and based on fact, not fiction. First one, while on the run and cooking his lunch on a mountain in northeast Rhodesia, meets Dina, the man of bees. Together they make the perilous journey to Mozambique. Once in camp there, the East German Stasi tutor them in the foul arts of terrorist war. Move forward to 1985. Oliver York, home from exile in Scotland, opens a business in Harare. Rosemary, his neighbor, approaches him with a plea to rescue her youngest daughter from her abusive father. During a subsequent attempt, everything goes horribly wrong. Later, at an unexpected meeting in Whitehall, London, where the matter was discussed, Margaret Thatcher says icily to Oliver, You started this. You sort it out. Failure is not an option. Thereafter, Oliver and Dina, the old man of bees, risk everything, including their lives. This was a fascinating story, and I don't think it'll have an equal for years to come. That's it for this month. The books reviewed were The Black Book, by James Patterson, Little Bones by Sam Blake, and Man of Bees by Oliver Stuart York. Enjoy your reading. And get your nerves sorted out. Beverly Ross Muller, short stories, good, old, reliable, standbys. I find travel never so terrifying as when I have absolutely nothing to read.
having just returned from a number of very efficient train journeys between Amsterdam and London and across the breadth of Belgium, I made doubly sure that I had packed good old standbys, reliable, absorbing short stories. I've never been keen on reading on screens. It feels too fiddly, and I long for the comforting heft of a book in my hand, smudged with the eggy sandwich bought early in the morning on the station in Aachen, or the chocolatey spots left by decadently delicious Belgian truffles. I'm so glad I don't live in Bruges. I'd be the size of a Titanic. Before leaving Cape Town, I bought two old faithfuls that I had not read in years. A new reprint of W. Somerset Maugham's short stories selected by Anthony Curtis and Royal Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected. And in London, I tracked down the short story collection by sensational American writer George Saunders, 10th of December, for which he won the inaugural Folio Prize. The marvelous thing about traveling or sitting, waiting anywhere with short stories is that if they're crafted by a masterly hand, they are utterly absorbing for a brief space of time. They can be picked up and put down at will, whether you're waiting for a school sports match to end or visiting hours to begin at a hospital. Wherever you are, they wait for you patiently like an old friend. I'd forgotten how brilliant W. Somerset Maugham's short stories are, having read them all decades back. That naughty old codger had an uncanny knack of penetrating immediately into the hearts and minds of his characters, while keeping the reader in suspense with the outcome. Reading them again was about like being wrapped in a warm blanket on a cold winter's night. They are written out of a bygone time, and yes, he does have some old-fashioned attitudes. Set in many exotic places Maugham visited during his well-traveled life, they are rich and even tender, filled with human frailties and passions. Roald Dahl's Tales of the Unexpected is another old reliable. You will no doubt recall his macabre turn of mind, much beloved by children, who are so much less squeamish than us adults. His most famous short story, Lamb to the Slaughter, still has the power to horrify and delight me every time I read it. The short stories of George Saunders are of a different ilk. They are dystopian, funny, chilling, yet completely astonishing. You simply can't predict where they'll go, or even why. Tenth of December, with its ten short stories, was described by the New York Times as the best book you'll read this year. Saunders recently published the astoundingly brilliant, I have almost no superlative too great to describe it, Lincoln in the Bardo, a full-length novel which left me aware that he is a writer of genius. The book is difficult to describe, but here goes. It is based on the death from illness of little William Lincoln, the president's beloved son during the American Civil War. The novel recounts a night with the inhabitants of the cemetery in which little Willie was buried and where his father visited his grave. That bit's true. I simply cannot recommend it highly enough, though figuring it out takes a bit of getting used to, rather like his short stories, but the result is more than worth it. These books are fine fare for winter reading and are available locally, old friends and new. Vanessa Levenstein, one of Raymond Sutner's letters was addressed to your parents. One of my early childhood memories was of my father taking trays of fruit to visit his friend in prison. 
We were in Durban on holiday, and I couldn't understand why he had a friend in jail. And so he explained. Through the years, the fruit changed to letters, as Raymond Sutner spent over 11 years in prison or house arrest. Reading this book, I felt like I was watching a pencil sketch filling up with colour. Yet the vast majority of readers won't be drawn to the narrative because of their childhood memories. So here's why it's a must-read. Inside Apartheid's Prison by Raymond Sutner was first published in 2002, and now 15 years later, with so much having changed in our country, it's fitting that there's a new edition. The updated introduction starts with Sutner's painful choice to break ties with the political parties that had once been so much a part of who he was. Sutner writes, The motives for my breach with these organisations were in essence the same as the reasons why I joined them, in order to act with integrity. The author links South Africa's present to the past. There are no answers, no pat solutions, just the author's truth. Before reading the first page, I felt a slight trepidation that inside Apartheid's prison may read like a political textbook with lots of rhetoric. Not at all. Satna's writing is succinct, crystal clear, and the book is one of those through-the-night, can't-put-down page-turners. There isn't a trace of self-pity or boasting. Satna just says it how it was for him. He was a young Jewish man, a lecturer at Natal University during the day, and printing illegal literature at night. He led this double life for four years until his arrest. Satna describes his torture and interrogation and detention almost clinically. There was nothing in my own life experience to prepare me for the ordeal of falling into the hands of a group of single-minded sadists. Two of the chapters in the book are the letters he sent from prison, the first batch from 1976 to 1982, and again from 1986 to 1988. I know others are experiencing worse, Sutner writes. Yet it wasn't only the political prisoners who suffered, but also the families who sent their letters from outside of apartheid's prison. As a prisoner stripped of physical freedom, a lot of time is spent in the inmate's head, and Sutner had years to reflect on his choice, his convictions, and the meaning he derived from them were his sustenance. I sometimes sit in my cell after lock-up, and I wonder what more one could want of life. Inside Apartheid's prison is deeply moving. It felt like paging through an album of South Africa. Figures like Joe Slover and Nelson Mandela don't loom larger than life. Rather, they reside comfortably within the pages. The book tells the story of ordinary people displaying extraordinary courage and our country's hard-earned proud heritage. Inside Apartheid's prison reminds me of a quote my father used to repeat, that of Edmund Burke. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And that's it then. And from me, Cory Bowes-Taylor, it's Keep Warm with a Hot Book. Book Choice was proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. Hi, I'm Andrew from Wordsworth Books. We have bookshops that are a bit different. We have staff that are a bit different. We love our customers and we're passionate about our books. From paperbacks at 59 Rand to Leonardo da Vinci at 2,000 Rand, our selection is remarkable. And we sell special stationery as well. Wordsworth. We sell books the old-fashioned way. We read them. If